Ever wondered what powers the world of your favorite superheroes? Dive into Understanding Superhero Comic Books, the definitive guide that unravels the mystery. It plunges into the captivating world of spandex, superpowers, and the masterminds who conceive them. Trace the origins and evolution of superhero comics, fueled by influences from Bela Lugosi's enigmatic charm, Errol Flynn's daring exploits, and the early mesmerizing magicians. Witness Batman, Wonder Woman, Captain America, and more as they navigate societal shifts, reflecting our world within their epic tales. By Alex Grand's Understanding Superhero Comic Books, available now. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the Comic Book Historians podcast. My name is Ann Scott Robinson, and I am the guest host today, where we talk to Dr. Alex Grand, who is the author of the new book, Understanding Superhero Comic Books, A History of Key Elements, Creators, Events, and Controversies. The book was published by McFarland Publishing in June of 2023. Alex is the founder of the Comic Book Historians website and social media. You can find his work on YouTube and Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram. Alex, let me be the first to welcome you to the CBH podcast. <laughs> hey, thank you, Scott. You know, your voice is so soothing. I'm really glad you're here and doing this. I thought it would be weird if I hosted my own interview on this. Didn't make sense. And Scott has been my editor on this book. You know, really wonderful, kind of my sensei in how to approach a thesis, especially that of my book, which is a narrative history of the origins of the superhero comic book, its various proto-elements, and then, once it was formed, how various key creators increased the trend toward realism in the superhero comic book to keep this commercial unit economically viable. I could think of no one better than you to lead this discussion. Well, thank you. I was happy to be a part of the project and to work with you. Uh, Alex, let's first talk about how you got into comic book history. In college, you studied largely medical pursuits, but you also were a, a media minor. Does that play a role in how you present comic books history to people? Yeah, I was a visual arts minor and I was editing short films and I had this urge to be like a filmmaker one day. It just kind of went a more practical way in life, I guess. But it, it always stuck with me. And I read comics as a kid and He-Man, mini comics. That's how it all started. And then the newsstand comic books at 7-Eleven, Spider-Man and his amazing friends and whatnot. And so my grad school and all that stuff was over. Then I ended up on Facebook running into comics history groups and found the whole thing was fascinating. And then Steve Ditko's Doctor Strange and Jack Kirby's, you know, pre-Marvel stuff made me realize there was more to it than the typical narrative that is put out there in the mainstream, as far as the Stanley version or the Bob Kane version. There's more to comics history that predates all those guys anyway. And then writing little articles on my website and then turning each article into a video. And then interviewing various comics creators, artists, writers, editors, letters, inkers, getting a holistic concept of the superhero comic book. Then interviewing Jim Steranko and reading his history of comics was like a real big mind explosion for me, which was why it was such an honor for him to write a forward for this book. And you were my preceptor in this. I kind of liken it to Uma Thurman and her sensei in Kill Bill. It was a big project. This was as hard as my, my grad school degree was. By writing the thesis 
the way it turned out, it turned into almost a degree in comics history in a sense. And thankfully, that was validated uh, by the good people at McFarland who publish books of this nature. Personally, I, I think I would probably would have preferred to work with Uma Thurman herself, but uh, <laughs> there's a comparison there I've never heard before. So thanks for that. Um, obviously, writing a book is a much more serious endeavor than the kinds of things that you've done uh, with the comic book historians' uh, social media. The, uh, the YouTube videos and the articles that you write are always engaging and informative. But the kind of research that one has to go in to put together a 350-page academic book is quite different. So could you tell me a little bit about uh, the research? You know, you tie a lot of things together, you know, radio and early film and and the pulps and and all kinds of things. How how did you, you know, approach uh, doing that kind of research for a book narrative? So this starts in 2015. One of my friends, Mike DeLisa, said, look, you know, you got to read old newspaper strip reprints. You got to look at the old pulps. You have to do all that stuff. And I took it to heart. Dick Tracy, Little Orphan Annie, Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, you know, you name it. I read a decade's worth of each of those things. And then I went back and just read all sorts of comics history books, you know, put out by all the publishers. I must have read definitely hundreds of them newspaper articles. I started really just gathering information. There's 1,200 citations in this thing. You know, I had to go back and find all that stuff. And everything I thought or everything I made notes on, I had to find which page did I find that stuff on? Where was this? And so that took two months to kind of go back all over again. But it was nice because it allowed me to fact check myself. It definitely adds a certain uh, credibility to what I wrote there. And really being journalistic, one thing I'd like to say about this is that it's not written in a way that's unfeeling. I think there is definitely a, an empathetic story about it. And it's written in a way that I think would appeal to all people, whether they're non-academics, academics. I think it's really meant for, really for everybody, I think. When I first saw the manuscript before it was, you know, to the final form, it had a lot of pictures, way more than uh, I think a publisher was ready to put out. But I found that in so engaging right away, all these uh, connections that you make with modern superheroes, with the past and a variety of media. I almost wish, you know, people could see all that stuff that I saw. But, I, you know, right away, I, I knew there was a story here that could be uh, documented. In your book, you break the book into five parts. Let's talk briefly about each of these parts of your books. The first part, Building Blocks, covers... Uh, early origins of comic books and comic book strips legacy and storytelling and how that influenced the development of superheroes, pulps to comics, and then you connect Hollywood cinema with the golden age comic books and classic American illustrators, as well as other historical figures like Houdini to superheroes. So could you tell us a little about how you made these connections in the uh, building blocks part of your book? Well, the basic idea there is that other media with other characters, proto-elements, pulp magazines, comic strips, vaudeville performances, various pieces of American illustration, proto-superheroes, Doc Savage, The Shadow, spring Heel Jack, etc. All kind of came together as building blocks to form the initial superhero comic books. 
Some of them are from direct quotes of the creators. The Houdini reference is definitely from Walter Gibson being Houdini assistant and then writer for The Shadow, which is being lifted content-wise by uh, Bill Finger to structure Batman. Even Bernard McFadden, another character and publisher, I found a Jack Kirby quote that said that their first love story comics were really modeled after his romance, kind of pulp magazines. And there are these publishing similarities between McFadden and then the later genre-specific pulp magazine publishers like Martin Goodman, Harry Donenfeld. And these are the guys that started DC Comics and Marvel Comics. You know, even the physical culture magazine that was put up by Bernard McFadden, and that being an influence on Joe Schuster, who drew the first Superman adventures that he co-created with Jerry Siegel. Don Heck saying that he modeled the early pictures of Tony Stark after Errol Flynn. Even Neil Adams, his Green Arrow, has an Errol Flynn type of influence. The Khazar comics that were based on the Khazar pulps, which were basically a riff of the Tarzan stories by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And then the comic strips, Bob Kane, as dubious as his past is, he gave some great info. You know, he said that there is a lot of Dick Tracy in the Batman. And what are those characters? And what were those pre-superhero characters in Dick Tracy? You know, the blank, the weird villain that Steve Ditko kind of seems to model the question after how the comic strips were the early choreographers of consumable, cheap entertainment in comic form. And even where the comic language kind of comes from, you know, 1600s political pamphlets and dialogue balloons in England and how that fashions into, you know, comic storytelling, like just the placement of dialogue balloons and how old that is. Even with like, let's say the design of a good comic book cover, you know, that goes back to American illustration and how a good poster, a good composition of one picture that can try to tell a story in just one picture and how that factors into a good comic book cover. All that is in that building blocks chapter to try to give you a sense of how comics are a, a medium and that the superheroes are a genre, but they came from pre-existing elements. What are those elements? And the science fiction elements from amazing stories that Jerry Siegel read. And he has a little fan letter in one of those issues that was overseen by Hugo Gernsback, you know, who's seen as the first science fiction pulp magazine publisher and, and how important he was. I felt it was important to just show that this stuff didn't just come from nothing or that it was created in vacuum. Mm. For a long time, at least in a lot of the 20th century, was the comic books were carried by the superhero genre. And there was no real good other medium that could properly portray the fantastical elements of the superhero other than comics. 1950s TV just couldn't really do that in any good way. I guess you could think of the adventures of Superman with George Reeves, but even that is quite hokey compared to the well-drawn theatrics of the comic book. Depicted by these comic book superstars like Carmine Infantino, Gil Kane, Murphy Anderson, you know, Jack Kirby, these guys visually outdid those kind of storylines better than any other medium could, and why that medium and that genre were a perfect marriage for a long time. So one of these proto-elements that you cover in this section, obviously, is the term Superman and how that was bandied about in the pages of Doc Savage and athletes, you know, the Superman who uh, were weightlifters and things like that, you know, bodybuilders. The other proto-element is the detective in the comic strips like Dick Tracy with a whole cast of villains and masked uh, villains and how that sort of relates to Batman. But one of the really interesting ones I didn't know about was the uh, magicians that were around in the, in that time in the 40s and the sort of connections to Doctor Strange. Could you tell us a little bit about that connection and specifically the uh, comic strip connection also to Doctor Strange and the the art and uh, and possibly on Ditko as a writer? 
Yeah, right. My concept of that is the magicians provided what superheroes then later do provide. This illusionary super element that people could go to like a vaudeville show and watch the theatrics of someone like Houdini or the great Blackstone and get this sense that these figures are super in some way and they use whatever illusions or devices or special effects of that period to create a certain stage appeal that would then create a certain escapism in the audience. And that element shows up in the Golden Age comics where there was a bunch of magician characters. There's almost like two kinds of these interesting magicians, the top hat guys, the turban ones, Ibis the Invincible, American figures using some sort of Eastern mysticism. You know, the most famous is Alexander, the one who knows with his turban. His backstory is interesting because he was an American guy who studied Eastern culture. And then he uses that culture as a show. And so his posters were just huge with the white man with the turban. That was used in the movie uh, Chandu with Bela Lugosi. And that story is about an American man who goes to the East and develops magical powers to fight occult characters. Dr. Strange is a Steve Ditko primary character, but that origin story is something that uh, Stanley had done before in Dr. Droom with Jack Kirby, the same as Chandu, which he says in his Origins book, that Chandu was an influence in Dr. Strange. And so these magicians are a part of that early genesis. Actually, Mandrake, you know, there was a real Mandrake who was a Zatera precursor, and then Zatera's daughter Zatanna is now a character now. So there is still that magician influence present in those characters. They're preserved and crystallized into different forms, but it comes from that need for early vaudeville escapism, I think. And what about the possible influence on the Sanctum Sanctorum and the art that you identify in the comic strips and newspapers on the Doctor Strange? Steve Ditko, he looked at The Spirit by Will Eisner, and there's definitely panels in there that can be precursors to Doctor Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum. But a lot of that illusionary stuff that Steve Ditko did was amazing and record-breaking in comic books. That language of showing abstract, surreal imagery and how that stuff was also present in comic strips, especially like in Pollyanner Pals and these really interesting comic strips in the 20s where panels depicting dreamlike states of an astral plane effect that we see in a lot of the Doctor Strange stuff. Part of that discovery was what made this all so great. Formalizing it, of course, in a way that everyone can enjoy was work I enjoyed, but the discovery of those things was like nothing else. And what about the other connection that you make from the comic strips and Popeye on the character Wolverine? The anti-hero concept in the Popeye comic strip by E.C. Cigar. Not the cartoon, which had more of a cheeseball effect. He had very much of those qualities that the thing and Wolverine almost had. Guys that didn't really know what their purpose was, they would kind of do heroic things because they were almost put in that position. But it's not like they were out on a mission looking for it. Especially with Wolverine, there is the mysterious past, hanging out in places like Singapore with an old pirate lifestyle and having these unbreakable bones, which Popeye also had. There's one panel where someone's trying to cut into his neck with a saw and they're like, my God, it's like metallic wire. Even Popeye being somewhat surprised that he has this weird healing factor riddled with bullets. Why isn't he dying? And everyone's trying to figure it out. It had been done before in those pages. And it was such a successful formula for a comic anti-hero character. And I say anti-hero because it's not like they're going out necessarily on a mission for justice all the time. His first battle with Bluto, you know, Bluto wasn't that common of a character. But when he first met Bluto, he was like this really savage, bigger, feral version of Popeye. When they were fighting, onlookers were like, look at these two Supermen. And this is before Superman was a thing. 
Look at these two supermen. They've been fighting for hours, for God's sake. This is beyond what any human being could ever do. And that's how Wolverine and Sabretooth were. But I also find it important to note that comic strips were doing this kind of stuff before and that it was appealing to a pre-superhero audience, a lot of the same formulas that superheroes are using. And when you talk about Popeye the Sailor here, we're talking about the comic strip, not the cartoon. Right. There's a huge difference, difference between the two. Let's go on to the second part of your book where you talk about the rise and fall of the superheroes. And here you talk about a lot of litigation between some of the companies over superheroes and copyright, the influence of science fiction on developing a sort of more modern type of superhero, and then uh, the Golden Age artists, and then some of the controversy that these comics of the 50s got into. Well, as popular as superheroes were during World War II, they start falling off the grid toward the latter 40s and most definitely in the early 50s. And this all starts, I think, around certain legal antics surrounding Superman and industry reactions to that. One thing that was interesting about Superman is DC Comics would basically send cease and desist letters or start legal action against competing companies doing a similar thing. Because there wasn't a superhero John at the time, there was just Superman who had all those qualities. So it was basically that one character and no one could infringe on that character. You know, Wonder Man by Victor Fox or the original Captain Marvel, Shazam, Master Man, another character by Fawcett. Even the costumes were different. The origins were different. Even the sources of their powers were different. They're like, look, you guys can't do superheroes. Only we can. And that's what keeps Superman really the number one character because of all these legal actions from DC, which I find interesting that it was lawyers that then helped establish his dominance and how that creates kind of a weird roadblock for a lot of companies like, well, then what are we going to sell? Let's do other genres then, you know, especially after World War II, you have love stories and crime stories. But how crime stories, the more sensational and violent they got, the more they were selling and the more graphic you make the cover, then those companies now start being able to make money. During that period of time, a lot of golden age comic artists that made superheroes what they were, they start leaving the industry for various reasons. Either their art got out of style or they were no longer welcome, like with Joe Schuster, or they went off to other media that were more respected, like Alex Schomburg doing illustration for magazines, or you have Will Eisner working more in the spirit newspaper comic strip insert. It was more of an overall theme of just kind of an exodus, Mac Raboy leaving for the Flash Gordon comic strip. The new generation starts coming in, and now Gil Kane, you have Carmine Infantino, who'd done stuff earlier. This next generation of creators starts affecting what these comics start to look like. So they start gearing up. They're about to do something special. In the meantime, non-superhero genres are being depicted. If the crime starts selling, then all these people start doing it. EC Comics, if you can add a little bit more of a fantastical element to that, then it turns into horror pretty fast because it's a lot of the same moral stories. But instead of a guy getting shot, maybe he turns into a zombie and eats a guy. There's like this extra little weird punchline at the end throw cannibalism in there, something. But then that starts getting the attention of, you know, lawmakers and parental groups and the whole Frederick Wortham. Comics are getting threatened with governmental, you know, interference. They have to change their tune pretty quick. And so then the comics code happens. There's like a collapse of the industry and it starts affecting distribution. You can't do crime and horror and then you can't really kind of encroach on doing superhero stuff because DC might sue you or the ones that you can do don't make any money. Because the standard superhero from the early 40s just stopped being interesting. The Golden Age superhero just had those three qualities, which Pete Coogan has mentioned in his book, but they have the mission for justice, the superhero costume, codename, and a superpower. 
that's all they had. They didn't really have much character development. There was no real sense of relatability or realism to them. They kind of fall out of line. And now you're kind of relying on science fiction, westerns and romance, but you have to water it down. It can't be too exciting. So what's the comic industry going to do, especially in the 50s, if TV has now soaked up a lot of the audience? So you have to kind of be able to appeal to the audience in a way that you can show that comics can have an edge over TV. And TV can do those genres better than comics can. So that's Julia Schwartz's genius. Finding a viable way of restarting the superhero using narratives that can navigate these sorts of industry challenges using relatable science fiction. And that was, I think, a real key point because the early Flash comics that Julius Schwartz oversaw with Carmine Infantino and Robert Kaniger, you know, Joe Kubert, they were huge. They were different because first you have a character that accidentally got their powers in a way that made a lot more sense than the Golden Age Flash. Hard water inhalation makes no sense. Even Julius Schwartz and our friend David Armstrong's interviews He's like, hard water inhalation makes no sense. Let's do something a little more interesting, like lightning and chemicals. But it wasn't just that. He made the actual character himself more relatable through other means. The way the Flash didn't really know he had powers, and then he's experiencing the powers with a reader, like he's an everyday guy, and he's seeing a bullet slow down in front of him, like, whoa, what is going on? Why am I seeing this? And he's discovering his powers with the reader that additional human element. So that, I think, brings back the superhero comic book in a way that feels new and exciting. That starts off part three, the flight of the superheroes, jump-started by Julia Schwartz. Also the time of the coming of Marvel Comics, other sort of trends of that period that are sci-fi based, like monsters becoming heroes, and then some of the other newer uh, types of creators uh, with uh, Lee and Kirby and Ditko working together and how their superheroes are, say, different from the Golden Age superheroes. The Marvel Methods credit controversy and then uh, Stan Lee working on superheroes beyond comic books and uh, Jack Kirby's Space Gods. So there's quite a bit in the third part about how these superheroes developed. But in a snapshot, what were some of the things that you discovered about that period that Mark superheroes has sort of developed past the 40s and the golden age? Well, I think what happens is with Julius Schwartz's renaissance of DC Comics, what he oversaw there jumpstarts the whole kind of change in how the superheroes approached. And I go into detail about that. And also retcons. Wonder Woman has a whole different style. Once Andrew and Esposito come into the mix, Kurt Swan coming in, Superman in Otto Bender as a science fiction person from the pages of Captain Marvel from Fawcett. There's definitely more of a science fiction push kind of goes around the same time that Julius Schwartz is redoing his stable of characters. Martian Manhunter, you know, another character, the new Green Lantern as Hal Jordan, the pilot, and him discovering his powers. You know, the new version of Hawkman. It's not a reincarnated Egyptian guy anymore. Now it's like base cops, Hawkman and Hawkgirl from the planet Thanagar, and how now it's like a science fiction thing. They all come together in the Justice League. But that's at the point where now Martin Goodman's watching and saying, look, you know, we need to make our version of it. And that leads to the birth of the Marvel Universe in response to what Julia Schwartz did. 
Stanley and Jack Kirby and uh, Steve Ditko did it, you know, one little pieces at a time. You know, they had monster comics and situationally weird comics and amazing adult fantasy and journey to mystery. But I think a lot of that monster stuff starts shifting into superheroes. They even reuse a lot of names, you know, like uh, Cyclops. And it's also interesting. It seems like the effects of litigation uh, are also felt during this period because companies like Timely or Atlas uh, becomes Marvel and they start to redo some of their characters from the older books like hulk was originally a monster and then you know there's a new version in the 60s even werewolf by night i thought that was really interesting that that title had been used previously by atlas and then uh, is later on in the bronze age becomes a, a monster hero during the horror craze the element there is look we can't do a character like superman they're gonna sue us Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, they did a character called Private Strong for Archie in 1959. Red, white, and blue character, super strong, had all these abilities. Cease and desist from DC, like, you can't do that. So there's this rock on a hard place where Stan, Jack, and Steve are like, fine, maybe we can make monsters into superheroes and not have a Superman type of character, some perfect guy. Let's actually go the other way and let's take this relatability over at DC. Let's make it flaws. Let's make imperfections. Let's make them almost monstrously relatable and compound that with radiation-based powers. DC Comics didn't do that first, so they couldn't sue anyone who did that. And thank goodness, because if they did, they more than likely would have sued anyone else who tried that. Spider-Man, that's like a monster. Hulk, that's a monster story that was not a hero. He was a monster that would kind of do the right thing when put in a certain situation. Tony Stark's heart problems, monstrously imperfect. Who was Thor's first enemies? They were these rock monsters from Saturn. There's this monstrous aspect to it and how monsters transition into superheroes and how you can actually create a whole stable of these flawed, realistic characters without copying Superman. And they're not going to dry up like the Golden Age guys did, because now not only do they have relatable science fiction causes to their powers, like the Schwartz team did, but now they have flaws and imperfections and and more of a bit of a human realism. There's almost a journey in the superhero genre where you're adding levels of realism to it to make it more relatable to the newer audiences, then become more viable economically. You're going to get buyers. It's all about what is selling to everyone else trying to copy to make money. So obviously, that's a a well-known development of the superheroes, say, from the Golden Age, where they were tools of propaganda, largely into the Silver Age, where the science fiction origins and the flawed uh, personas and the relatability or the realism aspect, largely introduced by Marvel, is uh, is a clear development. But in part four of your book, you talk about uh, four other... uh, Things that develop the superhero that are also very interesting, the uh, influence of people like Jim Starlin and John Byrne and Alan Moore and the becoming of the graphic novel. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what some of those uh, modern developments of the superhero were? Well, yeah, because once the flaws and imperfections come in into comics, then in the 70s, there's a little bit of a slump. Like there are newspaper articles saying, oh, where's Marvel going from here? Are they just going to repeat the same old thing? Steve Ditko seemed to abandon realism for the idealism of his personal political beliefs. And Jack Kirby left, and he seemed to have been in realism because he went off to create the space gods that he focused on in the 70s, the new gods and the Eternals. 
2001 Space Odyssey. When Stan felt so passionate about those characters that Jack Kirby, Ditko, and himself created together, he wanted to expand them into other medias. So what's going to happen? And that's what part four is about. Who's going to come in and take superheroes to that next level? There's a lot of people experimenting with death in the early 70s, but it was Jim Starlin that really made it a pop cultural event that everyone read. Thanos, the cosmic entity of death, he created those for Marvel Comics. And as he's doing different comics throughout the 70s, he's bringing those characters in and continuing his own multi-issue saga that I think Kirby was trying to do with the New Gods. But Thanos was more interesting, I think, to audiences because he wants to kill everyone. Death, I think, is just a much more relatable, realistic fear than an anti-life equation. What can an average comic reader relate to? Well, I think the fear of death is the next step in realism and why that's the direction that buyers were kind of going with. Because if a superhero is in a battle and they save everyone in the story, which is what they were doing, well, what have they learned? They've learned nothing from that. But if literally millions of people have died, and all they can do is minimize death, but they have to live with the fact that people died, that they could die any second. I think that became even bigger with the Infinity Gauntlet when half of the Marvel Universe died, and everyone was so afraid that they were next. Introducing that fear of death into the superhero genre, I think that was huge. Not only was it the fear of death, but actually killing major characters, you know, Captain Marvel from Marvel Comics or Robin and DC. I mean, he's got a a, quite a hit list there of achievements. Beautiful Uh, hit list. I mean, the corporatization of comics prevents a certain permanence to these deaths. And that's also mentioned is the illusion of change in comics, which goes back to Little Orphan Annie in the 20s. You can't really change too much because you're messing with a repeatable income source for a company. But it still gave us that moment when that Infinity Gauntlet 1 came out like, wow, these guys could die. Even Thanos murdering entire planets and killing Pip the Troll, Gamora dying. I mean, Jim Starlin is a genius. He's a veteran. He brought kind of a war sentiment. When you're a soldier, even the Vietnam War kind of taught people like, you can't save everybody. You can barely get out yourself. I think that falls in to uh, his effect on the superhero and the superhero story and the superhero saga. And that's what kept readers going like, wow, what's going to happen? We don't know. You see that influence of Starling even in the the last Avengers film, you know, when some of the characters died. And I remember the, the same exact sense of shock and disbelief of in reading the death of Captain Marvel in the in the early 80s, getting to the end and, oh my God, he's really dead. They killed this superhero. And the same thing in the movie, I really just wasn't prepared to see major characters like Iron Man or the Black Widow or Vision die. It was the same, what? You know, they did yeah. that and, and that's the Jim Sterling effect. What about uh, John Byrne? Can you tell us a little bit about uh, his role in modernizing superheroes? Well, John Byrne's important because there's a point at which you have to make the 60s stuff appeal to a new audience. And he succeeded in modernizing superhero comic books for Generation X kids like myself. His stuff in the X-Men, Avengers, especially Fantastic Four, um, Superman. It was multi-company as well as multi-comic. There's a John Byrne effect in all of them where he brings back the stuff that made the 60s stuff cool, but he modernized it, gave it a new shine, gave a new purpose in the 80s. He made those 60s characters kind of matter again to the next generation. Mm -hmm. And that's important. And that's hard to do. And that's what maintains the relevancy of those characters 
now in a lot of ways is Marvel and DC have to kind of hire people that can do that. That's kind of a John Byrne effect. Can you make the same old characters feel new using what made them great to begin with? The fact that he could both write and draw that stuff. Now, in your book, you talk about Alan Moore as really being the developer of the last thing uh, developing superheroes. Briefly describe what you see as that element that Alan Moore introduced into comics and why we haven't sort of reached any new ground since then. Alan Moore continued those stages of realism that Jim Starlin continues off of. If you look at the stages of realism that progress over time during the evolution of the superhero genre, it follows certain stages of human degradation. And I say that in a joking way, but in a way that's kind of true. Golden age, you have the idealism of the superhero. In the 50s, you have the relatability. In the 60s, you have the flaws and imperfections. And in the 70s, you adding the fear of death into it. Well, what usually happens when people fear death, when we saw this during the pandemic and there's a fear of death, there was a certain selfishness that did come up. Grab as much toilet paper as you can. It's mine, right? Well, I think what happened with Alan Moore was he showed superheroes in the real world in a geopolitical way would be used in a selfish manner. Those powers would be used selfishly. They would become self-involved. They would follow through on their vices. They would want to be left alone. They really wouldn't care so much about the human condition. You know, that's the deconstruction of the superhero, but really in the end of the day, it's adding the selfishness to that and how that mission of justice now kind of goes away in the real world. If realism in superheroes is what everyone wants, then Alan Moore just kind of took it to that nth degree. Okay, fine. You want realism? Here's realism. And it wasn't pretty, but it was such a revelation that there were so many people trying to copy that formula, like superheroes in the real world. They're not even heroes. They're just superpowered jerks now. Like CEOs of corporations. (laughs) They'd almost rather be rich or follow through on addictions, you know, just be left alone. Dr. Manhattan would rather play with sand on Mars than save anybody. It completes an arc of realism. And now you have all these different elements that now writers after can kind of siphon from, recombine, use again, you know, in the 90s, that extreme era, the extreme age of comics is let's use all that stuff and just make it more intense. Let's uh, make it more graphic. Let's make it more violent. But it's really reusing a lot of those elements that the pioneers put out. The last part of your book is about the coming of growing diversity in superheroes and the aftermath of all this. It seems to suggest that perhaps we might be in the beginnings of a new age. Maybe diversity is the next uh, age of comics here. Can you talk about that part of your book? You know, I don't know if it would be count as necessarily another age, but it certainly does feel like it could be an acknowledgement that there are other people and that we need to see them as human and let's give them adventures too. Now we're kind of in an age where we have all these things to choose from. Maybe a direction that can do new things is having characters that are not necessarily Caucasian. Let's actually have characters from different backgrounds, whether they're different races, different genders, different sexualities, going through the various stages of human behavior. I think especially after the George Floyd incident, maybe that was a wake-up call in some ways where all these complex superhero stages and emotions, well, let's have people from various backgrounds go through that. Two people that I'm grateful for, Trina Robbins and then Professor uh, William Foster, both whom I met and invited them on the podcast. I felt like I needed their perspective. Trina, as a historian of women in comics, I called her and We went back and forth on the women in 20th century comics section, and uh, she was so nice, and she helped me, and I was really grateful for her attention 
and Professor Foster, a historian of characters of African descent. You know, I had back and forth phone calls, emails that really made sure that the African-Americans in 20th century comic books chapter was done correctly. They're mentors in that sense on those topics to me. And so to have their involvement was really kind, but also I think adds a dimension that needed to be added to this where we need to acknowledge women creators and women characters in comics and African-American creators and African-American characters in comics. They both go back to the 1890s when a lot of the American comics, like the Yellow Kid, were being pioneered. Well, if comic book superheroes have been on this uh, developmental journey to reflect realism, you know, that we largely see from the change from the golden age to now, it makes a lot of sense that this diversity that we see is a reflection of that kind of realism. Women and African-Americans and the LGBTQ community and Asians, societies are, are quite diverse today. And you see that diversity reflected in a lot of television and video games and movies, you know, with women, very strong characters. And it makes sense that that type of realism uh, felt quite strongly in comic books and superheroes today. Maybe we are at the beginning of the diversity age. You know, who knows? Yeah. Yeah, it could be. And one thing I wanted to do at the end was go over the death of the 20th century comic book greats. Through the book, there's information on the creators as well as the characters throughout and their journey doing that. Well, we see where the superhero genres, but how did they end? How did they die? Because that's the end of the story for them as well. And so that was where the last chapter, thanking them and acknowledge their passing up to the mechanisms of their death. And it was interesting, you know, a lot of heart attacks and cancer and uh, strokes and Alzheimer's. And for all of us, there's some medical finale over this life journey that we're on. And I kind of wanted to acknowledge that in a way that respected and also thank them for creating this world and this industry that we're so into. Well, it is quite a journey that the book takes the reader on from the development in the early days of comic book strips right up to uh, the diversity we see reflected in comic book films and TV shows and what happened to not only superheroes, but all the creators. Especially since comics, a lot of them are geared toward one day becoming a movie. And so where are all these superhero comic book movies coming from? It doesn't necessarily develop the narrative art of the comic, but this genre now has moved sideways to other media. And where's all that coming from? And who are the people responsible? And we should kind of all acknowledge who these people were. Well, you can read all about it in Understanding Superhero Comic Books by Alex Grand. And this is available from the publisher McFarlane on their website. It's also on Amazon. You can, there are links to it on the CBH websites as well. And barnesandnoble.com, Target, Walmart.com, you know, they're all there. And you might see uh, Alex this summer at Comic-Con in San Diego. So uh, you might be able to uh, find a, examine a copy in person yourself. Uh, Alex, thanks for coming on and telling us about your book today. And we look forward to some more CBH materials soon. Thanks, Scott. It was a pleasure. I appreciate you. Happy to be here. Mm -hmm.